right, if you've got your copy of God's Word, then I ask you to turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's where we're going to be this morning. All right, everything's, everybody's okay. All right, Happy New Year. I want to say that first of all. I know last Sunday we looked back at 2020, which was a year that was revealing in a lot of ways, and we could go on today about the things that this past year has revealed to us about our fears and our faith, our failures, at times our fury, because as we said last week, hindsight is 2020. But this morning we're putting 2020 behind us, and instead I want to look forward to 2021, right? New Year's resolutions, right? It's the new year, and so what lies ahead of us in 2021? Well, the pandemic is still raging. Political strife looms large, personal relationships are fractured, prejudice and partiality persist in and around us, pressure continues to build financially, mentally, emotionally. Happy New Year, right? (laughs) Promise I didn't come this morning to bring us down or to share with you my cynicism. I came this morning because we have good news. There's good news that while there's nothing automatic about a new year being a better year, The optimist in me still sees a spark of possibility in a new year. It's a fresh start, a blank slate. A new year allows us to set our hearts and our minds, renew them and put them on our goals and to devise plans, to make resolutions, to do all those things. I wonder this morning, did anybody make any New Year's resolutions this year? All right, nobody in the first service did either. They were like, nope, it's not even worth it. We're not even going to bother with it this year. And so... If you haven't set any goals for the new year, don't, don't worry, I've got some ideas for you. I found these online. Um, some kids made some New Year's resolutions and shared those. I don't know if it was the teacher or who it was, but I thought I'd share them with you. Joey, age 10, said, my New Year's resolution is to not eat as much sugar, but I probably won't keep it. Declan, age 11, says, my New Year's resolution is to eat 10 bags of clementines each month. Seems ambitious. Annie, age 5, said, I'm going to help doggies, like if they get stuck on cliffs, which I guess is like a reverse lassie sort of thing. I'm not sure. Jude, age seven, says, I resolved to eat more bananas because I only eat two or three every day. And Will, age four, though, he, I think, has the right idea. He says, I will eat all the cake. I think we can all get it behind that one. So if we don't have a New Year's resolution, there are some. You can try those out. I have in my home office a dry erase board. I wrote down a few goals for 2021. Maybe you've got a similar place in your home or your life, a journal or something. Or maybe you've just kind of got some ideas in your mind about how you want this year to be different because a new year is a natural time for us to reflect as we did last week and then to reset our priorities, to resolve or to set ourselves on a course toward our goals. And so if you were to see my goals, you would see probably some of the standard ones, things like just being healthier overall, you know, watching less TV, um, doing more reading, those sorts of things. Um, But then one that I shared on our podcast the other day that I've put off for a long time that I'm determined is going to happen in 2021, I'm going to learn to play the fiddle. And so you all can get ready for that. It's coming. And so you better pray that I'm successful so that it's a pleasant experience and not not a painful one. All right. Some might be asking, like, are you going to get a haircut? No, that's not one of the resolutions. So... We make New Year's resolutions every year, though. And that got me thinking, what should our New Year's resolution be as a church, right? As a church family, as a body, 
we laid out some of the issues last week that 2020 revealed in our lives individually and collectively. So now the question is, how will we respond? What should our 2021 New Year's resolution be? And we could make a long list, right? We want to read the Bible more, do what it says. That would be a good start, right? The things that we walked through in the book of James this past week, if you were going through that with us, um, rooting out partiality and racism in our hearts, our lives, loving one another more patiently, taming our tongues, praying continually, praying collectively. But what if we wanted to just boil it down to just one? What if in the midst of all the noise, all the distractions, all of this craziness in the world, we could find a singular focus and fix our minds on that? That's what I want to think about this morning. It's a new year, but the same gospel. And so let's be resolved together over this coming year, that the gospel stays front and center. The gospel stays front and center. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's read together the first 11 verses there. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so we preach, and so you believed. Resolved to the gospel stays front and center. Paul's winding down his letter to the church in Corinth here. He's already covered a whole lot of ground. In fact, right, if we thought 2020 was a mess, then read the book of Corinthians, take a look at the Corinthian church. They had a whole lot of things going on. They were divided over which preacher they liked best. They were engaged in immorality that Paul says wasn't even tolerated among the pagans. They were bringing lawsuits against one another, airing all their petty disputes for all the world to see. They were insisting on their own rights. They were using the corporate worship gathering of the church as an opportunity to try to put themselves on a pedestal and display their social and spiritual superiority. Those are just a few of the matters that Paul was addressing when he wrote to the church in Corinth. And then chapter 15 begins and he says, now I need to remind you of something. I want to remind you of the gospel. Having addressed all those issues, all those things that seem to be at the forefront in their lives, Paul says, now I need to move to an even weightier matter. There's something that matters even more than all of those things. And that's where he calls them and us and every church across every time and place to resolve that the gospel stays front and center. For three reasons we're going to look at this morning. First, we need to be resolved that the gospel stays front and center because the gospel is what matters most. Look at how Paul starts there. He's been covering new ground in terms of his writing to the churches, some new subject matters, but now he says, I've got a reminder for you. I need to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. You received it, he says. In other words, you believed it was true. You accepted it as reality and staked your lives upon it. Past tense, you believed, you received the gospel. 
Then he says, I need to remind you of this gospel because it's the gospel in which you now stand. It's what sustains you today, what gives you the strength to continue on and what gives you the ability to understand what the Holy Spirit has written in his word through the apostle Paul. So present tense, the gospel is that in which we now stand. And then he says, I need to remind you of this gospel in which you are being saved, through which you are being saved. Your ultimate sanctification and glorification will come through this gospel. Our hope of eternity spent with our God as a result of this gospel. So he points us to the future as well, past, present, future. If you hold fast to the gospel, Paul says, you will be saved for all of eternity. And so we sometimes get this idea that the gospel is just the entryway into the Christian life. We get this idea that the gospel is what we need in order to become a Christian, but then we kind of leave that behind and move on maybe to more advanced matters. But the gospel is not that. The gospel is what we need every day of our lives as we follow after Jesus. We need this good news. We need to be reminded of it. And so that's what Paul is doing here, telling us the gospel is for yesterday, today, and for the days to come. If we are in Christ, then we received it. Now we stand in it, and we will be saved by it forever and ever. It's been well-documented, and some of you remember what happened with Coca-Cola in the mid-1980s when they decided to change their formula, right? New Coke was supposed to be the best thing ever, right? Anybody remember that? After 99 years, they decided, we need a new recipe. I don't know why, but they decided that, and a firestorm ensued such that the calls to their customer service hotline nearly quadrupled overnight, and within a matter of months, public pressure had Coca-Cola Classic back on the shelves, right? How does something like that happen? Happens when we take our eyes off of what matters most. All the testing said new Coke tasted better, but there's no bond like the bond between the American people and our sugary beverages. What mattered most was the product's connection to the customer. And when the connection wasn't front and center, they were in trouble. What matters most has to stay at the front and at the center of everything we do. And so we need to be reminded of the gospel because it is what matters most. It's what's most important. And so if it's, worth, if it's what matters most, then it's worth us getting right. We use the word gospel a lot. We don't probably often enough stop and say what it means, that it is good news. And thankfully, Paul tells us exactly what that good news is here. He reminds us Very clearly, very succinctly, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says, I'm not asking you to receive something that I haven't already received. It's what matters most, and it's what is of first importance. Just think about that. It's of first importance. Here's Paul in the midst of writing Holy Scripture and inspired by the Holy Spirit, God-breathed words, writing to the church at Corinth. And he stops to say, I've said all of this, right, which clearly matters very much. God is speaking it to his people, but this is what matters even more than all of that. This is Paul in the middle of God-breathed scripture saying, this is the most important thing. He's dealt with all this other stuff, but now he says, this is the foundation. If we don't have this right, if we don't stand on this, then we're going to fall when it comes to everything else. And so what is this good news? What is the gospel that matters most? Paul says it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He just lays it out point by point here. He says, first, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. A few things we see happening just in that sentence, right? First of all, Jesus Christ is a real historical figure who lived and walked on this earth, 
lived and breathed, and then died. But second, we see that his death had a purpose. He died for our sins. Our sin, our rejection of God, our rebellion against his commands broke our fellowship with God, brought sickness into the world, and results ultimately in death. Paul wrote elsewhere that the wages of our sin is death, but the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. He stepped in in our place, took our punishment, paid our debt. And so our sin was on Christ at the cross and his righteousness is credited to us. And this is all, he says, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, Paul's saying here, this is exactly how God has been saying it would happen from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis. He was pointing to one who would lay down his life to save people. He was pointing to the words of Isaiah in 50, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, where the prophet Isaiah said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. His death brings us peace. That's part of the good news. Paul goes on, he says he was buried again. Paul's relentlessly pointing here to the historical record. People saw Jesus on the cross. They saw him buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He's not just making something up here. This is real life. This is history. It's the turning point of all of human history. That's why it matters. And so he says Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Dead and buried would not be good news on its own. But raised on the third day, that is good news. Again, Paul is saying here, right, remember what, I told, what was told to you in the past. Remember the scriptures. Thinking maybe of Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and yet there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is the gospel? The gospel is the announcement of the good news that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So victory over sin and the hope of everlasting life belongs to all who receive him and believe in the name of Jesus. Paul would have the Corinthians and us know that he's not some lone wolf out here who's saying these things, who's making up some crazy story that a dead man came back to life. He goes on to tell us Peter saw it, the 12 saw it, 500 people saw Jesus after he was raised. Most of them, he says, at that point, were still alive if you wanted to go check it out. James, the other apostles, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was and is as widely attested as any event in ancient history. The gospel is what matters most. Those who receive it and believe it and believe in Jesus, are saved at that moment and for all of eternity. It's what matters most, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. That's the good news. That is our message. And that's what has to stay front and center in everything that we do in our church and in our lives as followers of Jesus. It requires us remembering what the gospel is, but also understanding what it is not. There are those who claim that they're going to be gospel-centered. They claim the mantle of gospel centrality, but then turn around and label every single issue that comes up as a gospel issue. 
And if what they meant by that was that the death, burial, and resurrection transforms the way we look at everything and everyone around us, then absolutely, I'm right there with them. But often what they mean is that if you differ with me on a particular doctrine or particular position or my approach to engaging with the culture in this area or that or whatever it is, if you disagree with me, then you've forsaken the gospel. Right? But that's not the truth. That's not the good news. Everything is not the gospel. Everything is not of first importance because if we make everything of first importance, then nothing is of first importance. Right? Nothing matters most if everything matters the same. And what matters most is the gospel, that Christ was crucified for our sins, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. It's what matters more than anything else in this world. That doesn't mean that focusing on the gospel doesn't mean that every lesson, every devotional or sermon or everything we do will have exactly the same content, but it means that nothing we do, nothing that we say should make sense apart from the finished work of Jesus, that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, buried and raised on the third day. Everything should be about moving that message forward. So the gospel must stay front and center because it's what matters most. Second, because it's what makes us who we are. Gospel is what makes us who we are. The gospel does, in fact, change the way we view everything and everyone in this life. Why? Right? Why does it do that? Not because believing in Jesus immediately transforms and changes everything about our circumstances. It doesn't immediately transform everything external to us, but because when we believe in Jesus and place our faith in him, he begins to change us. As Paul lists the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, he ends the list with himself. In verse 8, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul's list of resurrection witnesses had been those who saw Jesus immediately after his death and burial. Now he moves here to himself who had an encounter with Jesus, and it changed who he was. It made him the man who was writing this letter to the church in Corinth. If we were just to stop and take a look back at the life of the Apostle Paul, we see this very clear before and after picture in his life. Before he knew Christ, Paul, known as Saul, wasn't someone who was apathetic toward the gospel. He wasn't somebody who could just kind of take it or leave it when it came to the church. He wasn't going along saying, I just don't see how this is relevant to my life. No, Paul was determined to destroy the growth of the church and to stamp out all those witnesses that he's just listed that saw the resurrection. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Two verses later, he called himself the foremost sinner. And so when we're tempted to believe the lie that our sin is too bad or that it's unforgivable, that Jesus would not ever be able to save someone like us, Paul steps in to say, do you know the things that I did? Do you think I deserve to be saved? That's Paul, unworthy to be an apostle of Christ because of his sin, because of his opposition to what God was doing in the world through Christ. Paul's story speaks to anyone who's ever said, what's wrong with me? This time I've blown it too much. This time I've gone too far. Because Paul was a persecutor of the church, an insolent opponent of the church of God, unworthy to be called an apostle. But following his encounter with Jesus, Paul became an apostle. He says the least of the apostles, and so with humility, Paul points to his past while also affirming 
the grace and power of God, something that would seem impossible possible that a persecutor of the church would become an apostle of Jesus Christ, would become a leader in the church. There's only one way something like that can happen. It wasn't that Paul decided one day, I'm going to put all this anger and persecution and murder behind me, and I'm going to be a better person. It was that God did a work in his life. God's grace through the gospel fundamentally transformed Paul's heart and his identity. Listen to verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It wasn't Paul's good intentions or his good life that made him an apostle, that made him who he was as a follower of Christ. It was the grace of God at work in him. It was God's good work, God's power at work. So what Paul's pointing to here, he's pointing us to the gospel, to the good news, to what matters most, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and was raised. He's pointing us to the fact that if someone who sought to violently destroy the church of Jesus could be pursued by Christ and invited into the family of God, then the grace of God is for anyone who hears and receives this good news. Today, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus died for our sins and was raised in victory over the death that your sin deserves. God has already demonstrated his power to give you a new heart, a new identity as a child of God, a new life, everlasting life. You are not beyond the grace of God and this morning, church, hear me, neither are, neither are they. You say, who are they? Right, well, you know who they are. They're the ones who don't think like us or talk like us or act like us. The ones who don't look like you or live like you. The ones who may seem to be unworthy of the grace of God. And so we'll just pretend they don't exist or heap condemnation upon them. No, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. The gospel must stay front and center because the gospel is what makes us who we are. It makes us people who love those who Jesus loves, which is every single person. The gospel must stay front and center because it's what makes us who we are. Finally, then the gospel is what moves us to action. The gospel is what moves us to action. Some misunderstand the core of Christianity. There are some who believe that the primary message that we have, we gather here together on Sundays, is that here's a list of things you're supposed to do. Here's another list of things you're not supposed to do. Now, right, go and that's your homework, go and do it, right? But that is not the gospel that Paul preached. It's not the gospel that we've received. It's not what matters most. The gospel isn't what we are to do. It's what Christ has already done. It's what's front and center. But then people started having questions saying, well, if we're going to focus that relentlessly on the grace of God and the power of God to forgive and to save and to sustain, as Paul's arguing for here, then aren't people just going to decide for themselves what's right and wrong and how they want to live? After all, if we can't outsend God's grace, then won't we just go on and try to satisfy every desire we have in this life as it arises? If there's grace for it, See, in our flesh, grace seems counter to our effort or to our working. But Paul's not calling us to look at things in our flesh, but through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of our faith. We skipped over a phrase earlier in verse 2. Paul said, the gospel you received is what is giving you the strength to stand. 
and what you will see, what will see you through all the way to the end for all eternity if you hold fast to it, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. What does that mean, right? We receive the good news of Jesus by turning from our sin, placing our faith in Jesus. So what does it mean to believe in vain? And how do I know if I've believed in vain? Can I know that I've believed in vain before it is too late? Paul's not trying to send us into the same, maybe some sort of anxiety spiral or anything like that about the nature of our faith here. He's pointing us to the same thing we saw in James chapter 2. If you were reading along with us this past week, he's pointing us to the true nature of faith and grace. He's pointing us to this fact that if we have faith in Jesus, if we've trusted in him, then it'll be reflected in our lives because God will do a work in us and he will change what we want. He will change what we do. Look again with me at verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul's pointing back to verse 2 here. How do we know if our faith is in vain? Are we just supposed to guess or try to figure out? No. Paul knew that God's grace toward him was not in vain, that he had not believed in vain because he goes on to say, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God received by faith in Jesus is not opposed to effort or to hard work. Instead, it's what fuels it. Because when God changes our hearts and changes who we are, it will show up in our lives. And so we know our faith was not in vain because we continue to believe. But we also know our faith and God's grace toward us is not in vain because it transforms our lives in visible, observable ways. This is where Paul starts going back and forth here, pointing to what is to some extent a mystery to us. We are rescued from our sin by the grace of God. But then... God calls us to follow him. He he calls us to obey Jesus. And Paul goes on to say here, I worked harder than anyone, right? It sounds like Paul was responsible for his work at this point. But then he says, no, it wasn't I. It was the grace of God. It was God's grace that was the fuel for his work, for his ministry, his focus on the gospel. The reality is that it was God's grace that gave him the strength to keep going in the face of Incredible opposition. It was God's grace, he says, that is with me. So God's grace toward Paul made him who he was, but God's grace with Paul, God's grace with Paul fueled everything he did in his ministry because his mindset was this. We see it there in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Grace fuels the Christian life so that God is the one who gets all the glory as we sang there here at the beginning of our service. He's the one who gets all the glory when the grace of God, the gospel, is preached. And through the grace of God, people believe in him. Grace does not make our actions insignificant. The power of God at work in our world does not make our actions, our lives, our days meaningless, our moments meaningless. In fact, just the opposite. The grace of God infuses every moment, every word, every relationship, every encounter with purpose, that the gospel would be preached, that people would believe as they come to know the love of Jesus through our lives. And so let's resolve together today that the gospel stays front and center because it's what matters most. It makes us who we are and it moves us to action. You've heard the good news today that while all of us have sinned against God, Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he was raised 
so that when we receive him by faith, we have grace that covers our past, our present, and our future. So this morning, I would just ask you, have you received Jesus? Have you ever placed your faith in him? Today is the day. Or today, have you already received Jesus, but you find yourself weighed down with the accusation of your past sins, shame of who you were or what you've done that's stealing your present joy. By the grace of God, today you are not your sin. You are not your past. By the grace of God, you are a child of God and an ambassador for Christ. And so when those accusations rise within you, what we need is what Paul tells us here. What we need is to be reminded of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves daily of this good news that is the only thing that we have staked our lives and our hope on. We need to remind one another. We need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who remind us what Jesus has done for us and what he is doing in us. And then together, by the grace of God, let us work relentlessly so that those around us and those all around the world would know the grace and the love that matters most. Let's do the work this year that is required and empowered by those who have been entrusted as stewards of the most important message the world has ever received. The gospel stays front and center. It's a song by a band named City of Light. They're a worship band from a church in Australia. As we close our time in the Word this morning, I just want to share some of their lyrics from a song called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It says, No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. With every breath I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Heavenly Father, today we pray. We pray, God, that you would, in our hearts and in our lives today, Make the good news of who Christ is and what he has done for us front and center. That that would be the lens through which we view the people around us, God. That we would treat them with the same grace and love that you have shown to us. God, we pray this morning if there's anyone who is here with us in person or online who has never placed their faith in you, that today would be a day that they would turn from their sin and for, from living according to their, their own will, that they would place their faith in Jesus. Lord, in, who we, in whom we find grace, grace that rescues us from our sin, gives us a new heart, a new name, Lord, that gives us a new hope and a new joy, God. We pray that you would fill our hearts with these things, reminding us today, of who you say we are. As Paul pointed here in this passage, Lord, to, to his past, Lord, he did it because it helped to magnify your grace. And so, God, today we rely on that grace. We depend upon your goodness and your mercy and your kindness toward us. And we pray that you would give us the grace that we need to to walk with you today and that tomorrow you would do the same, Lord, and each day after that, Lord, as we continue, though, 
to be reminded of who you are, of your grace and of the glory that you deserve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.